This is The Lonely Office, your playbook for navigating the messy line between work and life. Our topics are sourced from real, anonymous workplace conversations happening within Glassdoor communities, from how to not get fired to negotiating severance. We discuss timely work-life issues so you don't have to brave that professional world alone. Have I told any of you about Darren No. (laughs) No. Sounds a lot like Aaron or Aaron's (laughs) second cousin. It's not Aaron, it's Darren. So just go with me about Darren's story. Darren gets an email over the weekend from HR. Now, he's been working at this job. It's new for about a month. Why is an email coming over the weekend? It's a weird time to get, right? It's a bad sign, yeah. So he gets it. It's like Saturday morning. It's pretty brief and it just says, hey, we'd like to see you in the office early Monday morning. (laughs) Darren had the best weekend of his life. (laughs) He starts going down this black hole of neuroses. Why am I getting an email from HR? Why is it happening over the weekend? Then he's going, did I say too much or too little on my resume? Was I too generous with some of the things that I talked about? (laughs) He's fact-checking his own resume after the fact. He's thinking to himself, why am I so worried about this? He's looking through these discussion boards. The reason for this fear, he realized, was... He didn't know anything about HR. It just kind of hit him. It's like an epiphany. All he knows is Toby from the office. You either get hired or fired. And he's got to figure out what's going on. So he goes in Monday. He's a zombie. He's walking down the hallways. He's saying his last goodbyes, he thinks, to people. He's going to the gallows. (laughs) (laughs) He goes into the office. He sees some familiar faces. And one of the familiar faces was from the hiring process. He sits down at the desk. And she goes, Darren. He goes, yes. She goes, We forgot to upload your W-2 form. (laughs) Oh, melodramatic. All that lost sleep. I think this would be a great place to start here for this conversation. Even though this ended up good for Darren, the ambiguity still remains. He still was curious about this whole thing. What's the function of HR? Why do I feel like they're a foe? Are they really a friend? Do they have an origin story? And I figured maybe that'd be a great place, Matt. Maybe to start telling that origin story. Right. And also a chance to bring more of an authority on the topic here, too, which I'll introduce in a second. Everyone's kind of read the Fishbowl post or Reddit post about that exact story. I just did some quick searches myself. Here's one. I feel like report to HR is some of the worst advice I've ever received. Anyone else have this experience? All the comments seem to go like, don't trust, be careful what you say. And out of all corporate functions, I feel HR apparatus may be the most misunderstood for reasons, frankly, because people don't know that's history. So I went into the topic a bit myself. Aside from academic publishers, there's not too much public literature. And by public, I mean literature for the layman, the lay professional. Really, unless you're getting a bachelor's degree in human resource management or maybe a certification from an HR organization like SHRM, which is a notable one, the history and origins of HR is not well understood by most working professionals. Thankfully, I was able to come upon some resources that will be supplemented with our guest here today. SHRM, the foundation I just mentioned, has a book called The History of Human Resources that tackle the topic a bit. Most of the literature links the beginnings of HR to the Industrial Revolution. With the rise of large-scale production, there was an obvious need to manage large number of workers, which leads to the beginnings of personnel management. It really gets interesting from there, because in the early 20th century, During this rapid time of industrialization, there were two schools of thought. The first, called Taylorism, focused on this idea of scientific management, analyzing things like workflows and standardization and division of labor, this kind of precursor to Ford's auto assembly 
line. The second school of thought was called Hawthorne Studies. And with that one, there was a realization that worker productivity wasn't only influenced by physical conditions, but also by psychological factors. Things like analyzing how employee morale and well-being could impact productivity. And you can see clearly from that the spawning or the through line that takes us to modern-day HR from the second school of thought. HR's origin story and intentions aren't what you would call aspirational. Most of the welfare officers, and that's what they were called then, whose job was to supervise the welfare of women and children in really terrible industrial factory settings. But then around the mid-1940s and mid-1950s, a transition from the physical welfare supervision of employees to more active employment managers began, and really playing a more advocacy role for employees on issues like training, recruitment, and addressing their grievances. So just to summarize, as it turns out, the ongoing workplace debate on HR, is it friend or foe, is really a justified one given the historical underpinnings. And I think it's worth diving into this topic in more detail for that reason and calling upon some of the guests like the one I'm about to introduce. Rusty Roof is a notable industry figure in the corporate and tech space. Rusty was actually a board advisor of Glassdoor. He also was an EVP, electronic arts for the better part of a decade, responsible for global HR, talent management. He also has a book called The Faith Code, A Future-Proof Framework for a Life of Meaning and Impact. You just proved that the subtitle of the book was for reading, not for speaking. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us and congrats on that book release. Thank you. So let's talk about HR. Let's talk about HR. Well, I mentioned Electronic Arts in your bio, but you were also at PepsiCo, which I didn't yeah. mention yeah. for a good portion of your career. And so you have a good knowledge and historical underpinning for HR's introduction into the PepsiCo corporate history. Maybe we can hear from you a bit on that as we delve into Darren's story. Darren's story is a real story. There was somebody just oblivious that they were actually sending an email on a Saturday morning to somebody not knowing how they're perceived. But a totally different weekend there, Rusty. Totally different weekend. <laughs> I was hired in the late 1980s by the head of HR for Frito-Lay, part of PepsiCo. His name was John Ewing. And John Ewing was the first HR slash personnel person that Herman Lay, Herman Lay of Lay's Potato Chips, hired mm -hmm. right after World War II in Chambly, Georgia, in the plant in Chambly. And John Ewing had been a personnel specialist in the Army. So he'd gotten out of the Army after the war, was looking for a job. And as you accurately described there, Matt, there was this beginning of personnel experts coming into the workplace after World War II. Remember what happened? A whole bunch of people came back into the workforce. They had been trained to be a specialist, be an infantry person, or to work on an aircraft carrier. Then there were people who figured out how to help battalion or corps leaders bring people together to operate as a team, figure out how to deploy missions and objectives with definitions of success. Now we have people coming out of the military, coming into the workforce who now have expectations that the workplace is going to be like my military experience. And lo and behold, you needed to hire these people. And so Herman Lay put an ad in the newspaper for a personnel specialist. And John Ewing answered that ad. And in his interview with Herman Lay, and I got this directly from John, literally sitting around a campfire one time at a retreat where he told this story. 
where Herman Lay said to him, look, I have no idea what you do, right? (laughs) I'm just a guy trying to make potato chips, but I know that I need someone like you. John said, well, what do you want me to do? And he says, I know I have the same raw materials as my competitor. I know I have the same manufacturing machinery as my competitor. There's only one thing that I have that can be different is I can have better people. So could you get me better people? He goes, what else? And he goes, well, I'll tell you, no pun intended here on the lonely office. It's a very lonely job being a CEO. And there are times I'm not sure we're going to make payroll. And I can't bring anybody into my office and shut the door and have a conversation with them without the fear that they're going to run out and go, oh, no, the sky is falling. I need somebody I can shut the door with, talk to, trust. And those two things were the things that the entire PepsiCo HR function were built off of. The PepsiCo HR function actually became an academy of function along with Bristol-Myers Squibb and General Electric, where they all had this same philosophy. It seems like the motivations for PepsiCo were maybe more from that Taylorism school of thought, which is just to be more competitive in the marketplace, to have a more competitive offering through better employees and better human capital rather than anything aspirational. We were very business focused. So when it became the touchy-feely employee relations kind of stuff, that was less in our DNA than in the DNA of other companies that thought about HR differently, who might have thought more about the welfare state, right? Right. And it was a fascinating dichotomy that when you would run into people from different organizations, you could tell how we were raised. PepsiCo's president back in the 90s, Andrew Pearson, wrote for the Harvard Business Review an article called Muscle Building, which is the way you build muscle is you must cut fat. So every year, every organization should sit down and look at the 10% of fat in their organization and cut it because you can't build muscle otherwise. And we had this performance process that was very, very robust. You came in with your 10% of low performers as the HR leader and with your business leader, and you would sit there. And if you came back next year with the same people on that list, there was going to be a problem. But I always felt that you cannot provide an amazing work experience where somebody reaches their full professional potential unless you have a thriving business. If you have a failing business or a business that's stagnant, I can't give you the things that you need. I can't give you leadership and development classes. I can't do interesting things like cool employee resource groups. I can't do any of that unless the business is thriving and growing. The protagonist, Darren, I think represents most people early in the workforce where they don't really understand HR. And when they look at the motivations of HR, they look at it with a bit of circumspect and doubt. How much of that is driven by For example, what you seem to be painting is a picture historically of the corporation, in that case, PepsiCo, going to market and either explicitly or implicitly sharing this promise or this expectation of you will get advocacy, you will get some of these perks that you were talking about in return for performance, right? Whereas now the perception is that that linkage between your performance and your expectation for some of those perks isn't described as clearly by these companies. A couple of things have happened that have changed what the expectation of the model is. We've had eras in the early 1990s, IBM had their first layoff in the history of the company. 
There was a time right. that if you joined IBM, you had lifetime employment. It was like joining a Japanese company. And people stayed at IBM forever because some of them just because they could. And then IBM broke that. They broke the social contract. And other companies began to break the social contract. We did it in 1991 at Frito-Lay. We had our first major layoff where on September 16th, 1991, sorry to give you the date, but I was there. I remember <laughs> where we took $100 million out of the business in general and administrative costs so that we could plow it back into marketing. And it was brutal. It was brutal because it was the first time the social contract had been broken at scale inside of that company. These things have an impact, but the impact that happened in the Great Recession when companies got into a position where they looked at their employees who were good performing employees and just wiped out layers of companies. It wasn't because of performance. And they made, in many cases, just indiscriminate cuts. That changed the tone and tenor of the relationship between employee and company. And lo and behold, we're now in 2023, post a pandemic, which also changed a lot of things. Who's the workforce that's talking about, I want a different relationship with my employer? Who's the workforce that's talking about, hey, who's taking care of me? Who's watching out for my mental health and my social well-being and all the things that I thought companies used to do but don't do anymore? It was the early workers in the Great Recession who are now looking at it and say, you know what? I can't count on corporations. They're just an institution. Is your perspective that like from a social contract perspective, the companies overpromised? We all talk about the family metaphor. I think the family metaphor is a ridiculous metaphor. I think we all right. agree here. <laughs> <laughs> Back in the 90s, there was a great Saturday Night Live skip when uh, Chevy Chase is sitting there and he's got his whole family around the table and they're having dinner and he goes, well, I got an announcement to make. Things are tough. Dad's not making the money he thought he was going to make. Jobs are tough and we're going to have to just think about things differently here in the family. Kevin, you've been with us for 12 years. And we have really enjoyed <laughs> our time with you. But Kevin, it's time for you to leave the family and go out on your own. And you know what? We're going to give you a little support for a couple of weeks. But Kevin, you'll be fine. <laughs> I mean, come on. It's not a family. There's a commonality of shared values and principles which allow us to, like a family, to argue back and forth and to bicker and come back together for a common purpose. But beyond that... Last I looked, it's a profit-generating organization. And a profit-generating organization must do what it must do to generate profit. Do you think that the suspicions of, let's say, a Darren, who I relate to, I'm more Darren, I come from that generation of coming out of college in 2005 and entering the job market between 2006 and 2008, right as the Great Recession started. I mean, I remember how bleak it was. And I also remember the stories that you were referring to, Rusty, about like my grandfather leaving with a gold watch after being with the company for 40 plus years. And so do you think some of the suspicions and the stereotypes, the Tobys and the office and things of this nature, it's not an irrational fear to know that if you go to HR, that there's something bad or you're going to lose your job or there's some sort of issue that needs to be resolved and that can be uncomfortable. But do you think a lot of that suspicion is justified based on the broken social contract? It's a great question. I mean, the suspicion's always been there. The suspicion was there before. Oh, the HR people, you can't trust them. The HR people, they're just lackeys. The HR people, they're necessary evil. That was here long before the Great Recession. And I'll tell you why. Human resources 
is not a profession. It's a craft. You can get a master's degree. You can have a PhD in organizational development. But when you show up in the workplace, no one certifies. So the craft leaves way too many openings for people to practice the craft any way they want to. I tell people all the time, you shouldn't be practicing the craft. Right. If you're over in the corner and you're a personnel dweeb and all you do is take orders all day long and you try to find your power by being the person that sends the email that has a little bit of mystique to it or trade in secrets, you should not be doing that. You're hurting an organization and you're hurting people. You're only perpetuating a terrible persona. I almost feel like in my experience, I've worked with some great HR recruiters, people who are great at getting great employees in the building, who are awful at the personnel people management aspect of the job. For me personally, like I'm going on maternity leave. What do I need to know? They have no idea. They're awful at that piece of the job or they don't understand the business. This is just not HR. It's actually even in the technical space where you grow up with a part of the expertise inside of a function. And then you top out. What do you need to do to, to make more money, to have more influence? You have to become a generalist instead of a specialist. If you want to make more money, you got to be a manager. You're a horrible manager. A common topic on, on Fishbowl and Reddit is the dizzying array of ranks and titles within the HR apparatus or function. You have from the top CHROs, Chief Human Resource Officers or CROs, HR directors, HR managers, talent acquisition, training development manager, compensation and benefits manager, HR business partner, HR journalist, HR specialist. Wow. There's a dizzying array of titles, <laughs> each of which have really discrete functions within operations. One could be completely dedicated to compensation, still falls within HR, and by the way, reports to an HR director or a CHRO. Another focuses on the function of recruitment, hiring people. That's completely different than paying them out. And that also reports to the HR director or CHRO. And then one focusing on grievances, for example. These are just three examples I brought. And all of those discrete goals or functions still report to the same figurehead. And so it's like, who's this magical figurehead <laughs> who's able to just encompass knowledge on all of these domains? I'd say vast more than what you would experience in an engineering kind of organization. There's plenty of job titles to go around in all functional areas. Right. But the difference is these areas that are less understood is because people are not equipped to explain. So if, if someone said, you see leadership and development, well, what is that? Well, if the leadership and development director or manager is having a dialogue with people where they go, oh, you're the person where training resides. You're the person that when I want to get a coach, you help with that. Oh, you're the person who's putting together my career path development stuff. So if I want to sit with somebody and understand how do I get from point A to point Z? So for me, being in the workforce, the terms coined like people manager have been the most friendly from an employee person. Like when I hear, oh, you're an HR people manager, I immediately know if it's something to do with my day-to-day -day grievances, I feel like I can go out to you. If there was more clearly articulated policy, Maybe an Aaron, for example, would have known to just like email back the compensation manager or whoever it is. You mean Darren? Darren, <laughs> Darren, that's right. Let's just let the cat out of the bag. It was Aaron. <laughs> Let's just be honest. I think that's right, Matt. Probably one of the good things about Taylorism in the early days was we knew specifically what every single person did. Actually, some of that's actually come back with productivity, work platforms. I remember when I came to EA, 
when I'd come from PepsiCo, and they'd never had a head of HR that reported directly to the CEO. So I was the first one in the company's history, and the company wasn't that old. But And I remember standing up in front of the senior leadership of the team, director level and above, there are probably 100 people in a room. Somebody said, so what is it that you do that's going to make anything better around here? Right. <laughs> so I could have spent 40 minutes on these kind of compensation programs, this kind of benefits program and administration. Here's the training programs. Instead, what I said is, look, here's what I'm going to do. I promise you, there will be nothing in this company that you want to do as a line leader of this company to grow this company that you won't be able to do for lack of enough people and great people to do it. This lens of HR as a monolith, in the same way you wouldn't generalize that old lawyers, at least you shouldn't generalize that old lawyers overbill. But in this case, HR, is it fair to assume is really organization specific? different organizations ultimately will have a different philosophy and implementation of HR. And that's certainly been my experience. My experience has been, it's not a one model fits all. On top of what Matt's saying, based on the size of the company, and a lot of the smaller companies I've worked, it's just an HR generalist who isn't truly an HR generalist. Yeah, that happens. They were an office manager. They were looking for a bigger title. Yeah. You do have to watch for that in startups. By the way, Leah, to your point, when Mark Andreessen started Netscape, there were 300 people and he had 30 HR people. Oh, wow. Wow. 10% of the company were HR people. And they did crazy stuff. Their HR people had philosophies that I would never do. You were required every year to go out and interview with another company mm. for a job. Oh, wow. And then come back and tell Netscape what you learned. <laughs> Intel. I mean, that sounds like pretty genius competitive intel. I'll tell you what it was. It was fascinating because you know what? The grass is not always greener on the other side. That's true. Right. I would start with what relationship does the head of HR have with the CEO and the senior management? And if that relationship is one where you see trust, participation, camaraderie, influence, that's a good sign. If you see the senior team going off to do something and the HR person's left behind. That's a question. Cautionary tale. Cautionary tale. I just wanted to say one thing that started happening throughout this conversation and, and listening. Something unexpected happened for me as a small business owner running my own consulting shop. One of the reasons why I haven't wanted to expand and keep my shop real small, because it's freaking hard to manage people. I don't <laughs> even want to touch that. And I'm starting to have empathy now for the <laughs> HR departments. So in the ideal organization, where HR exists as you see it, is the ideal role that they play a type of Switzerland, where from an employee perspective, you're coming in and you should both not consider them an absolute advocate. They're not your welfare worker, but they're also not just pure corporate interest. Is HR in a tough spot where they're being asked to play both advocate for employee and for the organization? And so therefore, you should see them as a Switzerland, I guess. I wouldn't say Switzerland's the right analogy for it, but they are caught in between right? Because I have to be able to talk to somebody about my job, about my issue with my boss, about people. And I have to be able to trust that they have my best intentions when I speak to them. And I have to be able to trust that they're not going to run back to the boss and say, oh, let me tell you what Leah just said or what Matt just said. And at the same time, 
this HR person needs to be able to take all those other data points and go back to the functional manager and say, we have a brewing issue here. I'm not giving names, but we have a brewing issue here. We're going to be in trouble unless we do this, this, and this. And you should listen to me. A lot of times what happens is HR hears the pain, but the line manager feels the pain. What we're trying to do is to alleviate the pain before the pain gets acute for the line manager. And we can do that. I made a living out of keeping secrets. I'll tell you some of the juiciest stories of HR stories are on this subreddit. Oh, I'm <laughs> sure. <laughs> There's some amazing anonymous accounts. I mean, it doesn't get more entertaining than that. Than that. What happens, Matt, is in order to get a little power or get a little influence, or maybe the boss says, come on, tell me who it is. Well, no, 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 I can't. No, 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 tell me. No, 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 no. Well, you know, it, it was rusty. I feel like that trust has broken down. There's a lot of chatter online of people saying, don't forget, HR is not your friend. They work for the company. They don't work for you. But we all work for the company. I feel like I've heard that more in the last couple of years than I ever did. I mean, obviously, you always need to be cautious what you say. A buddy of mine who just retired as the head of HR for Cigna Insurance. We've known each other for 35 years. We were talking about this the other day on a Zoom call. The HR function has taken a step back since the pandemic because all the emphasis has been on give me somebody who can help me figure out remote work. They don't have the budget or the resources to do all the things at the same time. And there's been a, a huge amount of burnout. People who are really good, who live the model that, that I tried to describe as a very functional, effective HR leader who've just left. My hope is that the next generation coming through will be able to fulfill and take the void of those that have left. Hey, you made it. Thanks for tuning into The Lonely Office. If you like what you heard, follow us on all major podcast platforms so you don't miss an episode. And make sure and tap five stars and leave a review. I know everyone says it, but it actually helps others like you discover the show. Remember, the topics you hear us talk about on the show are sourced from Glassdoor communities, where professionals are having candid conversations about their careers anonymously with others in their industry. To be part of that conversation, download the Glassdoor app. And when you're in the app, make sure and join the Lonely Office Bowl. That's where we are. When you're there, you can suggest a topic idea or an episode idea, or you can make it more formal and email us at thelonelyoffice at glassdoor.com. We'll catch you next time. 